are um, entering the second part of the text of Psalm 22, which it's my intent to, to cover for the next couple of weeks. And we'll be looking in particular at verses, I believe, um, 11 through 20 this morning. That will be our focus. But again, to preserve the whole context of what's happening here, I'll, I'll be reading the, the whole psalm together before we begin our message. So, once again, people of God, give attention. This is His Word. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you, and were delivered. They trusted in you, and were not ashamed. But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths. Like a raging and roaring lion, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All you offspring of Israel, for he is not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember And turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow 
before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. It will come to declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. Let's follow the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would open your word to us this morning. By the power of the Spirit, you would open our eyes, that you would soften our hearts, and that you would show us Christ. Help us as we look closely at the word that you have given us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So last week we looked at the cross of Christ, particularly as being a test of his trust as a man and the promises of his father to deliver him. We saw how many of the the things that were going through Christ's mind, because this is a picture into Christ's mind that we have in Psalm 22, as David said, as one of these instances of David being a prophet, speaking not of himself, but of the Christ. And we see in the thoughts that are going through the mind of Christ on the cross, and we hear in the taunts of those who are surrounding him, an echo of a temptation that he had already once faced. A temptation of trust, temptation that took place in the wilderness, at the the direct hand of Satan, who kept asking him in so many words, do you really have to be hungry? You don't have to be. Here are some stones, turn them into bread. Do you really have to be unknown? You don't have to be. Throw yourself down. Show everyone who you are. Do you really have to go to the cross? You don't have to. I'll give you the nations if you just bow down. And we heard from Christ's own words in the Gospel of John as he's approaching this moment. And he says, as as those take out their swords to defend him, he says, don't you know, all I have to do is say the word and my father will send legions of angels and this will be over. I don't have to do this. But, This is my Father's will, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to trust in His promises, even though it feels like He has completely allowed me to go. Thank you very much. Even though it feels like He's allowing me just to fall through the floor, His hands are not there to catch me. And we saw the way that Messiah passed this test of trust by recalling God's works of redemption for His Father's. And more than that, by recalling God's support and care for him, even in his most vulnerable state as a very, very young child. And we saw in those first 11 verses how Messiah passes that test of trust. And now, with that test having been accomplished, as we move through his thought in this psalm, we see him pressing on now to endure the suffering that is to come. And we're reminded, as we've thought about the dynamics in the first 11 verses, that now everything that he's enduring, he is enduring voluntarily. He's chosen this. And he's agreed and he's submitted to God's plan to undergo this sufferings, and this is key, in his human nature. 
One of the things I think it's possible for us to do from time to time as we think about Christ on the cross and we think about the two natures of Christ and we think about the one person of Christ is to think about his suffering in terms of, well, how bad could it really have been? I mean, after all, he was the son of God, imperturbable by those sorts of things. This is why it's so important for us to focus on the fact that when Christ is suffering in this way, he is suffering in his human nature. He has, in even passing this test of trust, put aside his access, not his access, his willingness to use that power to deliver himself. And he's enduring this as a man. And we see in verse 11 how he enters this this suffering. He begins, as he has already done in his test of trust, by calling out to God. Verse 11, he says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. He implores God not to be far from him. And there we see a repetition of the idea in his first question in the opening of the psalm. The question that Christ himself asks on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? And we see that throughout this trial, the most important thing, the thing upon which the sufferer focuses the most is not the relief from the physical suffering, but the renewal of God's presence, his sense of God being near instead of how it feels now, far. God feels far, but by contrast, in the words of the psalmist, trouble is near. It's near and there is no one to help. God's protection has been removed and all of the powers of hell are unleashed to do their worst upon this sufferers. And now this is what they're doing and they're doing it through the agency of these human enemies. And again, God's distance is the reason that the enemies are near. The enemies that have rushed in in God's apparent absence. And these are portrayed in the words of the psalmist as wild beasts. Verses 12 and 13. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. The bulls of Bashan were renowned in the ancient world for their, their power and their strength. Uh, the experience of being left alone in a field with one of these would be terrifying enough. But here his suffering is such that he's describing himself as being surrounded by these ferociously powerful beasts. These enemies, as he describes them, they're set on doing him harm. Their mouths are open and their, their rage is pouring out against him. In addition to bulls in this picture, we see lions raging, roaring, powerful, fierce, bloodthirsty. And so here we see a picture of Christ's terrifying circumstances. And in the weakness which he has voluntarily taken on, there's nowhere even to attempt to escape. He's, he's surrounded And he's surrounded by those whose every desire is to destroy him. Again, all of this is the effect of God's absence. Of his, thus far, his refusal to answer Christ's pleas that he be near. Now, 14 and 15, in these next verses, we we move from 
description of the state of things, external circumstances, to now seeing the effect that this is having on the anointed one. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. The strength is dried up like a potsherd. My strength and my tongue clings to my jaws. You, he prays, you have brought me to the dust of death. There was an ancient heresy that, as most ancient heresies do, will kind of pop its head up from time to time in the modern church. And this one was called docetism. And it was just the idea, docet was, he appears is what the Greek word means. And it was the idea that Christ only appeared to be human. It was the idea that the Son of God taking on human nature, oh, that's just a, that's, that's an unbearable thought. And so he must have just been pretending. It must have just been a phantom. Or it must have been just sort of a puppet that was animated by the Son of God and not really the Son in human nature. And again, we're back to this question. If that were the case, what would this suffering really be? These kinds of verses that we read off the tongue of Messiah show us that there is no room for such a notion of just disappearance of humanity. His enemies are fierce and correspondingly, the suffering that they're inflicting upon him and the suffering that he's experiencing is intense. We see him here being brought into a state of severe physical and emotional anguish and exhaustion. And it's interesting that as we look back at the psalm and we think about the readers of the psalm before Christ came into the world, we would think that many of these things would appear to be metaphorical descriptions of just how bad it was. But we also know from the account the way that things happened, they were much more than metaphorical. He speaks of being poured out like water while Messiah is hanging there watching his own blood spilling from his body, feeling his life being, feeling apparently irretrievably poured away. His bones are out of joint, the psalmist says. Some have speculated that as they would drop the cross into the hole, which is to support it, as the sufferer was already attached, it would result in the dislocation of the shoulders. Metaphorically, again, referring to the uselessness of his limbs. He has no strength. And in addition to the physical effects, the, the physical sufferings produce a devastating emotional effect. His heart has melted. His strength is dried up. He's been brought to a state of utter weakness and helplessness. Completely, completely at the end of his rope. In short, as he summarizes, he's been brought to the dust of death. He talks about his enemies again in verse 16 and 17 and 18. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and my clothing they cast and for my clothing, they cast lots. Now, in the ancient Near East, dogs were not man's best friend. They were dirty, they were wild, they ran in packs, and they caused a great deal of trouble. There's some speculation among commentators as to which particular people some of these beasts might have stood for. Whereas the bulls and the lions mentioned before could have reference to the mighty and the powerful among the people, among the Gentiles. This picture of the dogs 
may refer to just the common mob who has now surrounded Christ and joining in the chorus of insults, similar to what Job said of his own sufferings. These are people that used to not be able to lift their eyes in my presence, and now I'm suffering, and they they are taunting me, the common people, along with the leaders and along with the powerful and the strong. The picture is that from the very highest and most powerful to the very lowest and weakest and most despicable, the entire congregation of the wicked has surrounded him and have shut him in. And then, as we just heard, in incredible detail, the passage now reinforces for us again that we are, in fact, talking about what would be done to Jesus of Nazareth. The piercing of his hands and his feet, the lots that are being cast for his clothing. While, in one sense, these details are further emphasizing the pain and the shame that he's undergoing, hanging exposed, again, without clothing, before the mocking eyes of the whole congregation of the wicked, his belongings being distributed as if, and this was almost a picture to the person on the cross, you don't even own anything any longer. You are as good as already dead. We're distributing your stuff. Again, against the, the docetist error, these these pick, these. Verses give us this vivid picture of Christ suffering as a man. Suffering he really experienced as a human experiences suffering. Genuine human weakness. Enduring genuine human pain. But again, these details also pointing us to to what would happen. What would be accomplished by Christ. So a whole host of questions that this scenario presents to us. Some of which we we mentioned in passing last week, and I'll be exploring in more detail this morning. Let's just start with our, our first question. Why? Why is Christ, the Son of God, suffering like this. Well, even in the, in the words and the text right in front of us, we have a partial answer supplied. Christ is suffering because God has willed him to do so. Well, how, how can we say that? Why would we say that? First of all, we see again that while the suffering is most immediately and directly a result of Christ's enemies who have surrounded him, we have to be remind ourselves that the only reason his enemies have gained this power over him is because God has taken away his saving and protecting presence. Secondly, again, we see that the details of what would be done to Christ were foreseen and proclaimed a thousand years before they happened. This execution by piercing of hands and feet, the casting of lots for clothing, circumstances that would have been utterly unforeseeable to the human authors of the scripture. But details that are described specifically by the inspiration of the Spirit. Letting us know not just that Jesus the Messiah is the Christ foretold, but also reminding us the things that are happening to him were things that were planned in advance and planned by God himself. We see the same idea expressed in the book of Acts, chapter 4. It's Peter preaching there in verse 27. says, For truly, 
in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, this is a prayer to the Father, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, and here it is, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The bulls, the lions, the dogs that surrounded Christ, that inflicted upon him such unspeakable suffering, were doing no more than what God had specifically determined that they would do. And this understanding is what leads Christ in his complaint back in verse 15 of the psalm to acknowledge he knows the source, to acknowledge the ultimate cause, ultimate cause for being brought to the dust of death. He says, you have brought me here. The suffering that Christ is experiencing was what God had willed and determined for him. So that's one aspect of the question. Why is Christ suffering like this? He's suffering like this because it was God's will for him. But then there's a second aspect of this. We already read the Hebrews passage, so maybe you already know where this is going. But the scriptures tell us that Christ's suffering was a lesson. A lesson. Why would God do this? Why would he forsake his son? Why would he leave him to such horrible suffering? Well, the book of Hebrews, in particular, seems to have this psalm's description of Christ's suffering in view when it describes in 5-7 of Hebrews, Jesus offering up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. I think he's talking about the kinds of things we're reading in this psalm, Psalm 22. And doing so to him who was able to save him from death. And what does the book of Hebrews tell us about the purpose for this suffering? Again, we alluded to it briefly last week. Again, it tells us the suffering of Christ was supposed to be a lesson. A lesson to us. Yes. Yes. The scriptures continually present Christ's sufferings as an example of how we ought to suffer as well. Christ suffered with endurance, Peter says. Christ suffered continually, calling upon God through his ordeal. He, Peter also says, suffered without reviling, without insulting those inflicting the pain. And the scriptures say, look to Christ, look to his example of suffering, and suffer in the same way. But when Hebrews speaks of Christ's suffering being a lesson, it doesn't primarily have in mind a lesson for us. Well, then for whom? 5.8 
of Hebrews. Although he was a son, he learned. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Even just the first two words of that verse might give us pause. He learned of Christ, of the Son of God. He learned. What is it that the Son of God didn't know? What is it that Jesus of Nazareth didn't know? What kind of lesson could he possibly have needed? The one who has known everything for infinite billions of billions of years, the author of Hebrews says, had to learn something. And here we are again, back to this mystery of the incarnation. Christ, as our standard saying, being the eternal Son of God, equal in power and glory and in knowledge with the Father and His divinity, knowing all things in principle, God decided, and Scripture tells us, needed to know something more by experience. And as amazing as it sounds, it's true that what the Son needed to learn from this experienced suffering, Hebrews says, was obedience. Obedience as a man. The truth is that life in this fallen world involves pain, real pain real difficulty. And our Savior needed to learn this, not just in principle, but by experience. Which brings us to the next question. Why? Why? Why was it so important that he learned this lesson in this way? Well, Hebrews answers this question for us. As well, earlier, chapter 2. Listen carefully for the answer to this question. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of people because he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. I was reminding as I was preparing this, um, a close family friend who, I don't know if they use invisible fences for dogs up here with the little shock collar. This man bred German shepherds, and as he was putting in this system, he decided, I'm not doing this to my dogs until I know what it feels like. And he wrapped the collar around his bicep, And then he walked across the line. (sighs) Okay. All right. Now I know. Now I know what I'm doing to my dogs when they go across. By taking on human nature, by taking on the duty of obedience as a man, and then by maintaining that obedience through the worst imaginable suffering through which a man can go, Christ was learning, learning, what was necessary for him to know by experience 
so that he could be exactly what we would need him to be as we go through our own suffering and our own temptation. And I think that part of the reason that the suffering of Messiah is portrayed to us in such agonizing detail in the crucifixion accounts, but not only there, but also in the psalm that's before us, is so that we can be assured as we read these descriptions, we can really know that Christ really does understand what it means to suffer as a human being. And to know what it feels like to be abandoned by God to our enemies. And all the while being tempted to sin. And as one who was, as Hebrews 5.9 says, made perfect as the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Brothers and sisters, people of God, the ultimate application of what we read about Christ's suffering in this psalm is that when we are tempted, and particularly as we are tempted through suffering, not only ought we to, but we can turn to him for help. And we find, what we find in the psalm is the personal, detailed, intimate, intricate, heartfelt account of one who has suffered as we do, yet without sin. And what we find there, and I think this is something that we're tempted also to do, and one of the things that keeps us from turning from, to the throne of grace in times of need, what we will find there is not one who expects us to suffer stoically. Not one who expects us to just put a happy face on it. Because, after all, such a person might say, you know in the end it's going to be all right. What are you crying about? We know that that's not what the expectation is, is because that is not what he himself did in the same conditions. The anguish, the pain, the crying out to God that we feel pressed to do in our suffering. This is behavior in which the perfectly righteous Son of God himself engaged. And the psalm shows us that. So as we reflect upon the cross, as we reflect upon the suffering that Christ endured there, people of God let those reflections, first of all, drive us to thankfulness. Thankfulness to God who loved us enough to send his son to learn this agonizing lesson and who sent him for the purpose of being perfected in this respect as the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And people of God, when you suffer, know that you can turn to him. You can pour out your heart to him and you can do so knowing that he knows exactly, exactly what you're going through. Let's pray.
Father, we ask that these words of yours that we have considered this morning would be to us a source of abundant grace. We do thank you for the suffering of Christ. We thank you for his so willingly undertaking to suffer so severely. And we, we thank you for the forgiveness that we have because of the suffering. And we thank you for what we know now. We thank you for the sympathy that we know he is able to show toward us when we come to him. And we rest now. Father, we rest in his intercession for us, his intercession which is gentle. Help us, help us as we face the suffering of temptation and help us to look to Christ in those moments. Help us to allow the experience and grace that he offers to be to us a source of help in time of need. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. And now people of God, by faith, look up, hear the blessing of the Lord. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.